Yes. Okay. Thank you, everyone. I'm really happy to be here today to have the opportunity to talk about my work and the work of the Polyp Prevention Study Group Consortium. So those are the disclosures. So today I'm going to follow up on a talk that John Barron gave a couple of years ago that some of you may have been here when he talked about the results of the vitamin D calcium polyp prevention study. So that was a clinical trial of supplementation with vitamin D and, and or calcium for the prevention of colorectal adenomas. And the treatment phase of the study was conducted between 2004 and 2013. It's a multi-center trial with the Dartmouth Project Coordination Center located here. And Dr. Barron presented the results of the trial, which were null. That is that overall there was no protective effect of these agents for reduction in risk of colorectal adenomas. So my plan for today is to review the rationale for the trial and the, and the findings that we obtained, and then to discuss a little bit more about the null results. Why did we have no re null results? Um, are there potential insights to be found from subgroup analyses? And in particular, could anyone benefit from taking vitamin D or calcium for the prevention of colorectal cancer? So I bring this to your attention. This was an article last week in the New York Times called, Why Are So Many People Popping Vitamin D? And so this just lets you know how current and timely this topic is because um, the CDC reports that in the last decade, there's been an 83-fold increase in the number of Medicare beneficiaries who had their vitamin D levels tested. Now, clearly, there's not an 83-fold increase in osteoporosis. So why are they testing and why are they taking vitamin D? And it's presumably due to their thoughts that vitamin D might be protective against chronic diseases, such as cancer and cardiovascular disease. So the research supporting that use, though, is just not there. And we need more rigorous investigation of this type of uh, information. So some of that is what I'd like to talk about today. So as you know, colorectal cancer is the second leading cause of cancer deaths in the U.S. among men and women combined. And adenomas are precancerous precursors to about 75 to 80% of the colorectal cancers. So among average risk individuals, colonoscopy screening begins at about age 50. And then at intervals of three to five years for patients with polyps, that are found at their colonoscopy, or for 10-year follow-up in general for people that don't have polyp findings at their colonoscopy. So cancer chemoprevention is the use of pharmacological agents, synthetic or natural, to prevent the development of cancer. It's increasingly recognized as an important field, and there's really two reasons for that, I think. One is the recognition of carcinogenesis as a long-term process, which occurs over decades. And this provides the opportunity to intervene with a preventative agent before cancer develops. And the other thing that really highlights the importance is the heterogeneity that we recognize now in the genotype and phenotype of cancers, which greatly complicates their therapy. So this provides the motivation 
to discover preventative agents so that we can prevent cancer before it even develops. So the ideal chemopreventative agent uh, characteristics are described here. Now the important feature here is that because we are treating a population that is by definition healthy and does not yet have cancer, we need agents that have low toxicity, no or few side effects, they're effective at low doses, they're easily administered, they're readily available, and then they're cost effective. Um, so obviously calcium and vitamin D both potentially fit well into these characteristics. And they're both thought to be um, relatively deficient in our general population. So they're good candidates for chemopreventive agents. Now, before we started our current trial that I'm going to talk about, there was already a great deal of information suggesting that calcium has antineoplastic effects um, against colorectal cancer. So this has been supported by many in vitro studies, animal diet studies, and epidemiological studies, um, as shown on the right-hand side of the slide here, is a dose-response meta-analysis of the relationship between cancer intake and the risk of uh, colorectal cancer. And as you can see, with increasing total calcium intake, the risk um, compared to an intake of 250 milligrams per day uh, decreases with increasing total intake. Now, the other piece of evidence is that efficacy was shown in randomized clinical trials of adenomas, and one of those major trials was performed by our group a couple decades earlier, and I'll be discussing that trial more later in my talk. But right now, I just want to point out that it appeared that calcium acted synergistically with vitamin D in that trial, and that was a big part of the incentive for the new trial where we added um, a vitamin D component. So there are two sort of major hypotheses about how might calcium prevent um, cancer. And one hypothesis is that calcium uh, forms insoluble complexes or soaps with bile acids and fatty acids which are found in the lumen of the colorectal the intestinal tract, and thereby prevents the cytotoxic effects of these acids on the cells of the colorectum um, and increases their excretion. The second hypothesis is that there are direct effects of calcium in the lumen of the intestinal tract, which binds to the calcium-sensing receptor and then stimulates intracellular calcium signaling pathways that decrease proliferation and increase um, differentiation and apoptosis. So now moving on to vitamin D. Vitamin D is actually a, a pro-hormone, which is converted to the active steroid hormone, 125-dihydroxyvitamin D, which is well known to regulate calcium and phosphate metabolism and it has a nuclear vitamin D receptor that regulates gene transcription. And it's responsible for increasing calcium absorption in the intestine to a maximum of about 30% of what we get in our diet. Um, it has classical effects on bone mineralization and calcium homostasis, but there are numerous potential non-skeletal benefits 
which have been proposed as a result of these observational associations. Um, the important thing to note as well is that the circulating precursor, which is 25-hydroxy vitamin D, and which is synthesized in the liver, is a biomarker of an individual's vitamin D status. So I'm just showing you on this side sort of what I talked about in the context of vitamin D metabolism. So vitamin D can come from food or supplements. There's not very many dietary sources of vitamin D. Um, it can also come from synthesis in the skin, where it's uh, produced from the con conversion from dehydroxycholesterol when you're exposed to sunlight. And then once you um, obtain vitamin D from either of those sources, the liver converts it to 25-hydroxy vitamin D, and that is the major circulating form, as I told you, and reflects vitamin D status. Subsequently, um, vitamin D is activated um, in, highly, in a high re highly regulated fashion to the active hormone, the 125-dihydroxy vitamin D, both in the kidney, in the endocrine function, as well as in various other tissues. And it's inactivated when it's um, hydroxylated on the 24-carbon, and that targets it for excretion. The activated hormone then regulates transcription and target tissues via the vitamin D receptor. And this is all a very highly regulated process such that vitamin D feeds back to turn down its own synthesis and turn up its excretion, and then also uh, indirectly by increasing calcium release from uh, the bone and, and in absorption from the intestine, um, turns down parathyroid hormone levels, which would normally increase uh, the synthesis of vitamin D. So in terms of vitamin D and cancer, there is a great deal of preclinical evidence suggesting uh, potential effects. And the way this is thought to occur is shown on the left-hand side of the slide, where circulating levels of 25-hydroxy vitamin D are actually thought to be activated locally um, in cancer cells or other tissues where there is um, expression of the hydroxylase, which forms the 125 active hormone, in a paracrine and autocrine fashion. And then the activated um, hormone, 125-dihydroxy vitamin D, causes the anti-cancer effects. Um, and these anti-cancer effects are, are shown, potential anti-cancer effects are shown on the right-hand side of the slide. So calcitriol, as it's known, or 125-hydroxy vitamin D, um, is thought to decrease or inhibit proliferation, increase apoptosis and differentiation, and to inhibit inflammation, invasiveness and metastasis, and angiogenesis. So, um, and this is some of the epidemiologic evidence. And as you can see, there are, this is a meta-analysis showing an inverse association of serum blood 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels with uh, colorectal cancer incident. And the overall uh, meta-analysis here suggests a 0.67 relative risk, so a reduction um, in cancer with higher, the high, comparing the highest levels of um, 
vitamin 25-hydroxy vitamin D compared to the lowest levels that were measured in each of these studies. Now, the, the problem with this um, study is that the causality is not known. So the epidemiological associations that we see with vitamin D might, in fact, be due to confounding of these vitamin D levels with sort of a good general health phenotype because vitamin D levels are, in general, associated with many healthy lifestyle factors, such as body mass index, exercise, alcohol, smoking, sunlight, dairy intake, etc. So it's hard to know whether this is a cause or effect relationship. Is vitamin D um, causing a reduction in cancer, or is it just a, um, going along with good health? So this brings us to the vitamin D calcium polyp prevention study. So this trial recruited uh, 11 different clinical centers in the United States. The participants were 45 to 75 years old. They had an adenoma at their baseline colonoscopy. They were in good general health. Um, they had no contraindication to the study agents. And we excluded people whose serum 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels were less than or equal to 12 nanograms per mil because that was defined as deficient. And so we couldn't um, ethically keep them in our a randomized trial. So the interventions were 1,000 IU per day of vitamin D3 or, and or 1,200 milligrams per day of calcium in the form of calcium carbonate. And the outcomes that we looked at at follow-up were the presence or absence of one or more adenomas one or more advanced adenomas, or high-risk findings, which are either advanced adenomas, which are further along on the pathway to cancer, or multiple small adenomas, because that outcome has also been associated with higher risk of having a subsequent advanced, um, uh, advanced adenoma or cancer. So this just shows you the study design. Um, we had a baseline colonoscopy. Uh, for our participants um, as part of their normal standard of clinical care. And then they were identified uh, by, the, by the coordinators as people who had a history of ad had an adenoma discovered at that baseline colonoscopy. And they were enrolled within three months. And then within 8 to 12 weeks, the participants were randomized if they took at least 80% of their study pills and had no other exclusions. Subsequently, the participants had either a year three or a year five colonoscopy. That was determined by their personal physician. And we assessed treatment effects over that period of either three or five years. Now, the flow diagram here shows that we randomized approximately 2,000, well, we randomized exactly 2,259 subjects. And as you can see on the left-hand side, uh, most of the participants were in the full factorial randomization, which means they were randomized with equal probability to one of the four treatment arms, placebo, calcium, vitamin D, or both. However, because we were working with a population of 45 to 75-year-olds, um, we allowed women who were concerned about osteoporosis justifiably at that age to choose to receive calcium in their study pills. So that's the two-group randomization. Those women were not randomized to calcium, but were randomized to vitamin D treatment. 
So when, we affect, when I report to you next on the effect of vitamin D, supplement, uh, vitamin D effects, we have, two we have two groups to compare. By, we, com we combine the three groups that had no calcium, no vitamin D, and compare that to the three treatment arms that had vitamin D to look at the treatment effects of vitamin D in this study. So when I report to you on the effects of calcium, what we have to keep in mind is that we had to drop the two-group randomization because those women were not randomized to calcium. They chose to take calcium. So they're very different than the other arms. So for calcium, we're looking at the two groups, two treatment arms that took no calcium and the two that took calcium, and comparing that to determine the effect of calcium treatment. So this just shows the overall study population, 63% were male, the average age was 58, most were not Hispanic whites, 10% were current smokers, some were drinkers. Um, as far as obesity, 37% were obese, which seems really high, but that's actually just reflective of the U.S. population at the time of recruitment. Um, and then also, the serum vitamin D levels were pretty low, 24.6 nanograms per mil, and that seems pretty low. 34.6% um, were less than the level of 20 nanograms per mil, which is defined as adequate by the National Academy of Medicine. But again, according to NHANES data from this period of time, that's very typical of people in the U.S. population. So 56% were taking a multi multivitamin. And they had to stop doing that um, when they joined our trial, but we provided them with multivitamins without calcium and vitamin D. So they could continue to take a multivitamin, but they weren't exposed to the study agent. And some of them were taking, um, but not very many, were taking vitamin D supplements and calcium supplements at baseline. Um, and we did ask them to stop that as well when they joined the trial. However, um, some of them still choose to do that after they were participating in the trial, and I'll show you data on that in a minute. And then 18% had an advanced adenoma at baseline. So here's adherence and follow-up. Um, as you can see, we were able to get follow-up colonoscopy data on 92% of our subjects. And this shows a breakdown on what happened to the others and why we couldn't get a colonoscopy on them. 1% um, died, almost 2% withdrew, we lost about 2%. 2.3% had no exam, maybe they were too ill, or they just chose not to. And then there was a very few with missing pathology data, so we couldn't include them in our analysis. As far as adherence to study tablets, um, about 76% of participants took 80% or more of their tablets over, averaged over their entire treatment period of either three or five years, and 86% took at least half over that period. And then, as I commented below, uh, before, there was some personal or non-protocol use of the study agents. Uh, it was relatively small. Uh, for calcium, only 3.3% took more than 400 milligrams per day. And for vitamin D, 4.4% took more than 1,000, and an additional 3.5% took between 500 <coughs> and 1,000. So these are the, the null results that John Barron showed you um, a couple years ago. Um, and as you can see, when we compare 
vitamin D to no vitamin D, the risk ratio is almost one. So there was no protective effect on the occurrence of one or more adenoma, shown on the left, or on the occurrence of advanced, one or more advanced adenoma, shown on the right. Um, in, similarly, for calcium, shown lower down, calcium had no statistically significant protective effect on the occurrence of one or more adenoma or advanced adenomas. And when we combine the groups that, when we compared the groups that had both vitamin D and calcium to neither, we also saw no statistically significant effect of the treatments. So what were the reasons for these null results? Well, um, one thing to keep in mind is that although randomized clinical trials are the gold standards for establishing a causal effect, they may fail for reasons other than a lack of a true causal effect. And why might that be? So adequacy of, of dose is a concern. Um, and when we started our study, we, we were allowed to use a dose of 1,000 international units per day, which at that time, in 2003, 2004, was considered high. Now it's considered a low dose. And trials of vitamin D now are considerably higher than that. But we were limited at the time by what was perceived um, as an adequate dose. In terms of a low exposure control group, this is a problem that plagues nutritional studies in general, in that you're going to have, the control group is going to have a, a wide uh, distribution of intake of an, any nutrient that you're intervening with. So we have a distribution of calcium intakes, and we have a distribution of, of vitamin D levels in our control group. So that can be difficult as well. Um, other, thing, other issues to consider are optimization of co-nutrient status. So such for vitamin D, for example, magnesium is thought to be important for its effect. So there may have been other deficiencies in other nutrients that might have um, hampered our ability to look at the true effect of our drug. In terms of the timing of the effect, we don't really know whether vitamin D was acting early in the, in the development of the adenomas versus maybe later um, towards when cancer was forming. And so we are looking at a relatively early stage and maybe vitamin D acts a little later. Um, loss and non-compliance of participants is a big problem in randomized clinical trials because we do do an intention to treat analysis. And so anytime people don't take all of their study pills or they take pills on their own, you're biasing the result towards the null. Um, and then power for small effect sizes is common in nutrient studies where um, nutrients generally have small effect sizes. So you tend to, power tends to be an issue in general in nutrient studies. But today what I really want to talk about is the issue of population heterogeneity. And could there be differences in response um, among different types of people that were in our study population? So I'm going to discuss two different analyses, and starting with vitamin D, um, we know from the literature, from twin studies and genetic association studies, that there is genetic regulation of 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels. So we decided to ask the question, do common variants in vitamin D and calcium pathway genes modify the effect of vitamin D supplementation <coughs> on, one, the increase that's 
in serum 25-hydroxyvitamin D that's achieved with supplementation or the risk of colorectal adenomas. And this was a very relatively small candidate gene study where we specifically targeted 41 SNPs in seven genes that had prior evidence for association with vitamin D levels or some other health outcomes. And we restricted our analyses to non-Hispanic whites because of known associations of these genotypes by race that could bias our results. So our hypothesis is in individuals with genetic variants associated with larger increases in 25-hydroxyvitamin D levels, vitamin D supplementation may reduce risk of colorectal adenomas. So I just wanted to show you here, these are the seven genes shown in orange that we uh, chose our SNPs from. And the four that have asterisks were uh, GWAS his in terms of being genes that are associated with, known, have known associations with 25-hydroxyvitamin D levels. So before we look at the results for the, geno, the genes and the SNPs, I just wanted to show you overall what happened in our study when we treated our subjects with um, vitamin D, 1,000 IU per day. And this is at year one. So if you look at the placebo group, the mean vitamin D levels were 23 nanograms per mil. Um, but in the vitamin D treated group at year one, the mean levels were about 31 nanograms per mil. So we're seeing about a 7.5 nanogram per mil increase in vitamin D levels due to our treatment. So we do have evidence that our treatment, our intervention was effective. And um, I also just note here that the, the percent of people that had um, less than um, adequate levels as defined by the National um, Academy of Medicine was almost 41% in the untreated group, but only 8.6% in the treated group. So this slide shows now the association of genotypes, SNP genotypes that we examined with baseline 25-hydroxyvitamin D levels. And we saw a very strong association as would be predicted from the GWAS studies that I told you about. So what's shown here is the estimated percent difference in the baseline 25-hydroxyvitamin D level per variant allele compared to the wild-type allele using an additive model. So there were many um, different uh, variants in the GC gene, which is the vitamin D binding protein gene, and in the 25-hydroxylase gene, and some in the 24-hydroxylase gene that were previously known to be associated with baseline levels from GWAS studies, and they were in our study as well. But our real question was, do these same variants also change the increase in vitamin D levels that are achieved with supplementation? And in general, the answer was no. The ones that were associated with baseline levels did not um, strongly associated with baseline levels in general did not strongly, did not change significantly the response to vitamin D supplementation achieved with um, one, one year of supplementation. However, there were a few, shown, a few SNPs shown in red here that did appear to be nominally uh, significantly board, and one borderline associated with um, differences in the increase that we saw with supplementation. So those were potentially of interest to us. So then we moved to the next um, part of our analysis, which was to ask whether 
these um, SNPs uh, variants were modified the effect of vitamin D supplementation on adenoma risk. So right here, all I'm showing you is the interaction relative risk, which is not something that's easy to interpret, but just look at it as a test of heterogeneity between the genotypes. And you can see that there were no statistically significant interactions for an outcome of any adenoma, but for advanced adenomas, there were two SNPs that statistically significantly uh, modify the effect of vitamin D supplementation on adenoma risk when we corrected um, and accounted for multiple testing based on the effective number of independent SNPs, which was 28 due to linkage disequilibrium. And there were two more also in vitamin D that um, were borderline significant. So in order to understand this, we need to look at the stratified analyses for those SNPs which are shown here. So this shows the effect of vitamin D supplementation on the risk of advanced adenomas stratified by genotype at those SNPs. And what you can see is that for the first SNP that I'm showing on top, the VDR SNP, people who had the AA genotype actually showed a significant protective effect of vitamin D supplementation. So they had a 64% reduced risk of advanced adenomas when they were supplemented with vitamin D. Whereas people that had one or more G allele appeared to actually have an increased risk of about 41% due to supplementation. And then this other SNP below on the bottom, it was the minor allele that had uh, showed a, a large protective effect of vitamin D supplementation. 78% reduction in risk with vitamin D supplementation. <clears throat> so, the mechanism and whether one of these SNPs is causal is not known. But I can tell you that if you look on the left-hand side of this slide, that these two SNPs that I just showed you the results for are in relatively high linkage disequilibrium. And when we did a combined analysis, there was not evidence that they were acting independently. So we believe there's one causal SNP in this region um, and that there aren't more than one. Um, so on the right-hand right side of the slide, you can see where these SNPs are located in the structure of the VDR gene. And they are found in the three prime untranslated region. And so although the mechanism is not known, there are several possibilities for how variation at these loci, loci could ch change or affect response to vitamin D supplementation. For example, um, one of the SNPs in this region is um, thought to be involved in RNA splicing. And it's known that there are at least 10 different VDR isoforms expressed. Another SNP is located in a CPG site. And so it could affect DNA methylation, and that's thought to, um, or there's evidence that it affects transcription of a long non-coding RNA. So potentially these types of changes could differentially affect um, the regulation of uh, genes by, by the vitamin D receptor, leading to activation or, or select uh, differential activation or repression of target genes um, related to carcinogenesis. So in summary, 
what I've showed you is that the effect of vitamin D3 supplementation on advanced colorectal adenomas varied by VDR genotype. Among individuals with the AA genotype at this loci, supplementation reduced risk by 64%. Among individuals with one or two G alleles at that same loci, risk was increased by 41%. And potentially, there may be benefit or harm, depending on which of these, you know, uh, which of these alleles you have at this loci. Um, and then the other thing that we noticed from our study is that there was a lack of concordance between SNPs that modified the effect of supplementation on 25-hydroxyvitamin D levels and those that modified the effect of adenoma outcomes. So this suggests that it's the vitamin D genotype, which is important for the effect of, vitam of vitamin D supplementation on adenoma risk and not the magnitude of the change in circulating 25-hydroxyvitamin D levels. Now, there's a big limitation um, that I need to discuss um, for this result, and that is that this is a post hoc subgroup analysis, which, while providing potentially valuable insights into what might be going on, is considered exploratory and hypothesis generating. So, importantly, there are several ongoing large vitamin D trials that may provide an opportunity to test our findings. And some of these trials are shown here. Um, they're being performed in, in the U.S., the VITAL trial, as well as in other countries. Um, the VITAL trial, in particular, the sample size is 26,000, and it's, um, in this trial, people are being treated with 2,000 IU per day of vitamin D, and the treatment duration is five years, and it's the people in about the same age range, 50 or above for males, or 55 or above for females. And the primary endpoints are cancer and cardiovascular disease. So we are very anxious to test um, our findings in that study, if possible. Um, however, the biggest concern probably is whether five years of treatment with vitamin D is going to be sufficient a length of time to detect um, changes in an outcome such as cancer. So now I want to switch bases and go to talk about calcium. So our big question and what was probably the most surprising finding that came out of our trial was that calcium supplementation was not affecting, effective at reducing adenoma risk because it was effective in our previous trial. So why the difference? We used the same calcium dose and formulation. We had relatively similar participant follow-up. Was there something different about the study populations? So that's our hypothesis. Our hypothesis is that there is a difference in one or more participant characteristic between our two trials, the first one where we did see an effect and this current one where I tell you the null results, that might explain why calcium supplementation was effective previously but not in our most recent trial. So um, a strong hint was obtained from, from this slide, which, uh, this figure, which was actually published in the New England Journal paper. And this was a, a look at the subgroup analyses um, to see whether there were any participant characteristics that modified the effect of vitamin D or calcium supplementation. And basically, all the results were null, except for the effect of calcium appeared to be um, dependent on BMI in that it was more effective in people with lower BMI and less effective in people with higher BMI.
So that was a hint, but now I'm going to look at data, uh, what we did to compare the two trials directly. So in order to compare the two trials, the previous trial was called the Calcium Polyp Prevention Study. And in that trial, we only um, randomized people to either placebo or to calcium. And it was a relatively small trial. So to compare the, with the current trial, we only looked at the people who were also randomized either to placebo or to calcium because we didn't want to have potential effects of vitamin D because that was not similar between the two studies. <coughs> so we're using a subset of participants in the current trial. And it's about the same number of people. And this shows you the study designs. Now, these were also not identical. So if you see in the earlier study, which was conducted between 1988 and 1996, participants had a year one colonoscopy, and then they also had a year four colonoscopy. And the main risk period was considered between the year one and the year four. Whereas in the, new, uh, the newer trial, as I showed you earlier, you had your baseline colonoscopy, and then you had a follow-up at three or five years. So to make these comparisons a little more similar, we combined the outcomes in the earlier study from both the year one and the year four colonoscopy, because those would have been present in the outcome in the second trial. So this made the study designs uh, pretty similar. If you look here, this is a plot of the follow-up colonoscopy, the time of the follow -up, last follow-up colonoscopy for all the participants in the trials. And there was a similar follow-up time. The mean follow-up time in the calcium trial was 42 months, and the mean follow-up time in the vitamin D calcium trial was 44 months, although there's a bimodal distribution because of the three and the five-year follow-up time. But overall, it's pretty similar um, follow-up between the two studies. And so these is, this is the comparison of the results that we obtained um, for the effect of calcium supplementation. And as you can see in the top, I show in the, in the newer trial, calcium was ineffective at reducing the risk of one or more adenomas with a 0.94 risk ratio. And it was also ineffective for high risk findings with a 1.1 um, risk ratio. Shown on the bottom now is the analysis of the calcium polyp prevention study um, using the out, uh, according to how I told you we were going to analyze it including the outcomes from both colonoscopies. And so what we saw there was a 12% reduction in risk, or a 0.88 risk ratio, for calcium supplementation on the risk of one or more adenomas, which was borderline statistically significant. And there was a 25% risk reduction, or a 0.75 risk ratio, for calcium and high-risk findings which are advanced adenomas or multiple adenomas. So we wanted to understand this difference. We do see a difference in the outcome, and we wanted to understand it. So this um, slide shows you the trends in overweight and obesity and extreme ob obesity during the period of time in the United States between 1960 and 2008. And what you can see is that in the calcium trial, the mean BMI was lower because it was during a time in the U.S. when obesity was increasing, but it had not yet reached the levels that we see today where there is a, a much higher portion of obese people in the newer trial. But that wasn't the only difference in the study in the, in the population 
um, between the two trials. So there were quite a number of other differences which may or may not have been important. And those are shown here. Um, so the participants in the newer trial, the vitamin D calcium polyp prevention study, were on average a few years younger. Um, they were, there was more male participants because this was, um, we had allowed women to do the, uh, not be randomized to calcium. Um, the race and ethnicity was pretty similar, mostly non-Hispanic whites, but there were a few more Hispanics in our newer, in our more recent trial. And as you can see, um, there were less people who were current smokers, 8.2% in the newer trial, 19% in the older trial. And as far as BMI, you can see we did have 37% that were obese in the newer trial, but only 24% in the older trial. Alcohol use, um, there, there was more people who drank um, more than one drink a day in the newer trial compared to the older trial. And as far as multivitamin use, more people used multivitamins in the newer trial, more people used aspirin in the newer trial, more people used non-aspirin NSAIDs in the newer trial. Uh, serum 25 hydroxyvitamin D levels were lower in the newer trial, but that's likely due to the association with obesity. And um, there were less um, high-risk colonoscopy findings in the newer trial. Um, despite all these differences, and we, and we looked at subgroup analyses, there was really very little um, going on in terms of things that were modifying the effect of calcium supplementation. And there's a few uh, findings here that, that look to be borderline significant, but that are not necessarily consistent across outcomes or across trials. So still our major finding was that BMI was uh, modifying the risk of calcium supplementation. And that's broken out in more detail here um, on this slide. So what you can see is in our newer study, um, it's clear and very st significant, uh, statistically significant, that um, calcium is more protective against any adenoma in people that are in the normal BMI compared to those that are um, higher BMI categories. And similar for advanced adenomas as well as for high-risk findings, you're seeing protective effects in the category, in the lowest category of BMI, but um, less, not, un, not protective effects when you have higher levels. Um, in the calcium polyp prevention study, we do see some suggestions of this interaction, but it's not as strong, especially for any adenoma. Um, but we do see uh, borderline statistically significant result for high-risk findings. And sort of my hypothesis here about why it might not be so strong in the older study is that I think there's more measurement error um, in terms of the BMI uh, calculation in the older study. And I think that's because in our newer study, um, we specifically asked the coordinators, the study coordinators, to measure the height and weight of their participants. And then we went so far as to ask them, did you measure the height and weight, or did you get self-report? So it turned out that 75% of the people um, in the new trial actually had their height and weight measured at the intake appointment in the newer trial and 25% were self-report. 
in the old study, we don't have that data. And so, and there was no sort of, um, we didn't hold the coordinators to the standard of having to say how they got that information. So it seems likely that there is significantly more measurement error in the, in the older trial. So that might explain why there, the, there's a weaker correlation there. So in summary, calcium supplementation appears to be less effective at reducing colorectal carcinogenesis in obese or overweight individuals, and this may explain why calcium supplementation is ineffective in our more recent trial. So what is the mechanism? So we know that calcium, we believe that calcium supplementation is inhibiting um, colorectal carcinogenesis. And we think that obesity is in some way impacting on that. So I've told you previously that there were two major hypotheses for the effect of calcium supplementation um, on, for the mechanism for how it, it blocks colorectal carcinogenesis. And that is that um, there's an in, increase in the excretion of secondary bile acids and fatty acids, or there are direct effects on the calcium sensing receptor. But we also have some evidence that calcium supplementation may reduce obesity. This is in the literature. There is some evidence that calcium supplementation may increase fecal fat excretion and could be resulting in very small increases in, um, in weight among people that take calcium supplements. But we didn't see that in our trial. But there is some information on that in the literature. But there is a lot of information on the literature suggesting that obesity is related to colorectal um, carcinogenesis and is associated with an increased risk of 20 to 40% in your risk of cancer, especially for men more than women. And the problem is that there are many possible pathways by, that why, by which that may occur, and six of them are shown here. And it's just really not known. And so one of the NCI's provocative questions Grant, uh, grant funding opportunities was specifically to address this issue, which was how does um, obesity increase the risk of colorectal carcinogenesis? And it's something that we are interested in and actively um, involved in researching ourselves at this time. So it could be that calcium has an impact on some of these pathways, and there's suggestions that calcium supplementation may affect insulin resistance or adipokine levels, um, and maybe that's how there's an interaction. But um, another possibility is that bile acids may, in fact, be um, the most important or one of the key pathways involved. And um, the reason I picked that one out is because there's recent evidence that bile acids are really important in metabolic control. So bile acids are synthesized in the liver from cholesterol. They're secreted into the bile, and they're discharged into the intestine, where they're required for fat absorption. Then they're converted um, in the colon by intestinal bacteria to secondary bile acids. And these are often the ones that are cytotoxic for the, for the, uh, the, the cells in the colorectum. Um, and then the bile acids are reabsorbed in the intestine and the colon. They're reuptake by the liver. And then so there's a pool that cycles of bile acids between the liver and the intestine. That's been known for a long time. 
But what's really pretty, pretty recently um, identified is that bile acid have, uh, has specific receptors, um, including the Farnesoid X receptor, which is a nuclear transcription regulator, and the CGR5 receptor, which is a membrane G-protein-coupled receptor. And there are now being identified very complex pathways by which these receptors regulate glucose, lipid, and energy metabolism. And they're potentially altered in obesity. And then in terms of the bile acid that actually reach the colorectum, there are complex effects in the large bowel. And, and there include both pro and anti-neoplastic effects, which may depend on the form of the bile acid that um, is, is, is in the colorectum. So another possibility is that there is modulation of the gut microbiome and bile acids in obesity. And obesity is, has been um, shown recently to have, it's hard to know the cause and effect relationship, but it's definitely associated with changes in the gut microbiome. And potentially, uh, different bacteria in the gut microbiome could create different types of secondary bile acids or more and less, some that are pro or anti-carcinogenic. So it seems like this could be a potential pathway by which obesity and calcium supplementation interact. But this is all totally speculative, and um, we are currently hoping to um, test some of these hypotheses about what the mechanisms are using specimens that we've stored from our studies. But there are certainly other possibilities as well, and some of you may know, know more about what those are, and if you have any thoughts, we'd be happy to hear them as we're thinking about how to take our research to the next step in terms of identifying the mechanisms involved, which will inform our future research um, options and choices and understanding. So um, in acknowledgement, um, I'd like to point out all the investigators and the staff here at Dartmouth at the Project Coordination Center who worked on the study. Um, John Barron was PI of the trial, and he's now at UNC. And, and we had many valuable staff members here, including Lee Mott, who was the statistical analyst for the study um, and continues to help us analyze the data. Um, and then uh, we also have many investigators at the clinical centers that are shown here, including at the DHMC clinical center. We had Rich Rothstein and Doug Robertson who led uh, those clinical centers. So I think I'm done, and if you have any questions I'd be, or any suggestions on how to follow up on our, our mechanistic studies, we would appreciate it. Thank you. absolutely no interaction. There wasn't really evidence for an interaction in the newer trial, but in the older trial there was some suggestion for an interaction. The problem was the interaction went the wrong way. So we have more people using aspirin and NSAIDs in the newer trial, but we see less of an effect 
but in the older trial, there were less people, but it looked like um, the drug was more effective in people that did take aspirin or NSAID. So it should have gone the other way. Um, so that was, it didn't help us explain the difference. It was the opposite of what we would have needed to understand the change. Um, but we have looked at that, and there are some suggestions for effects there. Um, we saw no effect on, in that way in terms of changes in response by these different characteristics. So, I mean, obesity is, is associated with lower vitamin D levels, but um, actually there was a, re a paper written by Judy Reese. And, I mean, in the literature, there is more evidence that obesity does, um, in general, seem to modify response to vitamin D supplementation, maybe because they're starting out with lower levels. But we didn't really see that as an independent effect, which was a little surprising in our paper. But we did write, a, uh, Judy Reese did write a whole paper looking at what are some of those uh, characteristics that may modify the response. And just a follow-up, so um, the obesity possible interaction yeah, I meant to mention when I showed that slide that we did um, check for that, and we did adjust for um, baseline vitamin D levels in our analysis of the interaction, and it did not explain um, the interaction between BMI. So it's something independent of vitamin D levels. We also looked, and I forgot to mention, at fatty acid intake, uh, at fat intake in the diet, and that also did not modify, uh, did not reduce the interaction that we saw. So it's something else that is explaining um, the interaction between BMI and, and the effect of calcium supplementation. Yeah. Yes, if I remember correctly, uh, sunshine is very efficient in burning vitamin B. In fact, most vitamin D deficiencies are in northern latitude. If you talk about stratifying or studies yeah, so, I mean, in the main paper that we published, that was actually a hypothesis that, like, it was really one of the only uh, pre-specified hypotheses from the main trial, which was that people with lower baseline levels of vitamin D might respond better to supplementation and have a better response. But there, we didn't see that. So um, there was no effect modification by baseline levels or, or um, in terms of the response to supplementation. So, you know, it was a good uh, hypothesis, but it is not something that we saw in our data. Yeah. Is there any reason to think that there may be a difference in response to calcium when Yeah, I mean, there are different types of calcium supplements that you can take. I mean, the two big ones are calcium carbonate and cal calcium citrate. Um, calcium citrate is thought to be absorbed. Uh, yeah, calcium citrate is thought to be absorbed better, so people take that. Um, it's certainly possible. Calcium carbonate is generally used because you have to take less, you know, the, the amount that you have to take to get the same amount of elemental calcium is less. You don't have to take as many of these huge pills when you take the calcium carbonate. 
So I don't know. Um, it's possible, um, but it's definitely something that's crossed my mind. But I don't. I don't. You know. It, it's yes. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Exactly. So it certainly could. Um, both of our the two studies that we compared though both use calcium carbonate, and and by, I think for the for you know the most part calcium carbonate is more often used in these types of intervention studies. But who knows if we use calcium tritrate? That would be a new study. <laughs> yeah. Back to the point about aspirin. So is this low dose aspirin? Does it include calcium? Uh, as part of the formulation, some of these low-dose aspirins do. You're asking whether low-dose aspirin interacts with... Or, or it actually includes, I mean, as a buffer, some sort of calcium Um. Well, we looked, I mean, we looked more generally, broadly at aspirin intakes, so I can't say that it was low-dose you know, we didn't specifically, you know, we don't really have the numbers to get it. Assuming that because of the huge jump, it seemed to involve from, from the first calcium to the second calcium trial, if I read your slide correctly, uh, really a lot bigger percentage taking. Uh, but I, I don't know, maybe I, I misread that, but it, it seemed like a, if, if that were the case. In any case, I see all the, also other references and interactions between calcium and aspirin. Yeah. That, that's a big feature of your data. But yeah, another interesting thing about the trial is, uh, so you, you could both uh, opt out or uh, calcium and vitamin D. Uh, and uh, so although you are looking in a randomized way at calcium uh, in, in those people who, who didn't opt out, they are people who didn't opt out. Uh, women, mainly, and uh, or entirely, I guess. And uh, so, the uh, I mean, I'm wondering whether that made any impact on, on your thinking of the different results, perhaps for calcium, because these are people who who didn't elect the opt-out. Right. They, they they're people that didn't um, choose. To, yeah. So that's a different. You know, in the first trial, we didn't have that option. And so that's why we have more, actually why we have more women in the first trial when I, when I compared the two trials because there were more men um, in the second study because we excluded the women that chose to take calcium. So you see a sex difference, whether there's some other, yeah, I mean, there, there may be something, but probably the biggest impact of that is you see the, dis the difference in the sex distribution, which we found did not modify um, the effect of calcium supplementation. You, you may have mentioned this, but was there any difference between the cohorts of women who did or did not uh, agree to calcium? Um, I, I don't know that we've really explored that in a huge amount of detail, but in general, I think there are some pretty significant differences. I mean, the ones that chose to take calcium tend to be a healthier cohort. You know, the people that are much more active and probably lower BMI. So there are definitely some differences there. So that, yeah, that could be a small a factor um, in terms of the difference between the trial. Yeah. Okay, thank you.